0: Um, Before I get into the sermon today, I wanted to mention, and now I've lost it, I'm reading a book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, and it is uh, by a person named Dane Orland. It's an incredible book about who Jesus is and his essential nature, and it draws from this description of Jesus in Matthew 11:29, where Jesus says of himself, "I am gentle and lowly in heart," which is just an incredible. And then he, he, it's one of those things that's too good to be true, until you read the book and then you realize this is pretty solid. Jesus really is gentle and lowly in heart. Um, apart from from God becoming flesh in Christ and becoming enfleshed in Christ for our good. You know, God, Jesus and his personality as well is gentle and lowly. So it's both expressed in his incarnation and God becoming a person in order to save us and teach us the way, and also in his attitude. And so if you look in the Gospels, every person that reached out to Jesus, he, he didn't turn them away because, he was, because he's gentle and lowly in heart. Uh, he attracted people that needed a touch from him with compassion, with humility, with love and service with loving questions to help people get free. I mean, Jesus was incredible. But I just wanted to mention that, I mean, for anyone that's, that's wondering how they will find Jesus if they come to him today, the answer is you'll find him the same way you found Jesus in the New Testament, humble and lowly in heart, pretty much ready to come up alongside and serve people that are trying to follow him, whether by forgiving them, strengthening them, empowering them, you know, Jesus is, all about pouring himself out, not just in his death on the cross for our salvation, but in our everyday lives. So Jesus says, come to me, you who are labor, who are weary and laden with burdens. You will find me gentle and lowly in heart. That's what Jesus says this morning. So that's, that's, that's Jesus. Anyone, any time in history that comes to Jesus, he does not turn them away. Boy, the opposite. And that, that's everybody, not just... Um, the people that are special. Anybody who reaches out to Jesus, he doesn't turn away. I like to keep that in mind. We're going to be talking about something a little bit more cosmic in nature today, though, uh, something that's a little bit more of a big picture concept. And so this is uh, this is a concept called the day of the Lord in the Bible. This is a concept that Paul is teaching us about in our study in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. So we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12, we don't have any overhead. Our computers having issues, so if you have a Bible or your phone or whatever you have with you, you can look up 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-12. And here Paul is talking about, yes, this cosmic, gigantic idea of the Day of the Lord, which is telescopic in its nature, in that if the Day of the Lord was a concept, it would be like a folded telescope, and then you unfold it a little bit, you see a little bit more of it, a little bit more of it. It's just a huge concept that culminates... Um, in God bringing about his rule and reign fully on the earth. Now, right now we're living in the already not yet kingdom of Jesus, but someday the kingdom will be fulfilled fully and and Jesus will come back. So Paul teaches about this day called the day of the Lord. And it is, again, a concept that is so prevalent in the Bible, in the Old and New Testaments, you can't can't turn away from it or explain it away. It's there. It's, It's all through the Bible, from Joel, Amos, Zechariah, Acts, Thessalonians, Peter, it's talked about all the way through the Bible. Whenever there's a concept that's talked about all the way through the Bible, I think it's a special thing to focus on because obviously God wants to do something through us understanding it. So I want to make a big deal out of this teaching and kind of talk about it uh, from our text, uh, which we'll get to soon. But put in a more concise way, the day of the Lord is a time in history, these are my, this is my words, a time in history when Jesus will come back God will bring his kingdom into its full form on earth. It's called the day of the Lord. J- Jesus will come back the first time he came, you know, quietly and, and under the radar. But this time it will be clear to everybody uh, that he's back. And Jesus will come and bring his kingdom into its full form on earth. In church, we, we talk about the already not yet kingdom and that Jesus came and brought a kingdom that we are a part of, that His rule and reign now. This book, God Soaked Life, is talking about the kingdom of Jesus. This is what we're doing in our small groups. Uh, in, in a more subtle way, the kingdom is advancing in the world through, through the ministry of the church and the Holy Spirit, but someday it will be brought to its fulfillment. And it will be uh, a time when all injustice will be made just, all wrongs will be made right. And the Bible talks about it in a lot of ways. The day of the Lord involves a judgment. Of, of the people of the earth, and God bringing his full justice to bear upon creation. It's a time when God sets everything right. All the tears that have been cried and the injustices that have happened throughout human history, God will set everything right. In case we were to try to explain this idea away, because it hasn't happened yet, Paul, Paul teach, or Peter teaches this very thing is going to happen in the last days, in 2 Peter 3. When people were criticizing how long it kind of has taken for God to come around to the day of the Lord in second Peter, it says, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. It's been a couple thousand years since Jesus was here. The Lord, so it's been two days. Um, (laughs) so you're welcome. But, But he goes on to say the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of Christ. Lowly and humble. The reason that's taking so seemingly so long for the day of the Lord to come is because the lowly and humble Savior is trying to get as many people into His kingdom as possible before the time when He comes back and brings fulfillment. He goes on to say in, in, in 2 Peter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So this is going to be a time, this is all Old Testament language. It's talking about revealing, that's what apocalypse means, revealing everything that's hidden, and pretty much anything that has a hint of untruth in it or injustice in it, it's going to be shown for what it is on the day of the Lord. This is actually very good news for many people who are suffering in the world today, seemingly without justice. Peter also says that before the day of the Lord, uh, scoffers and mockers will come along saying, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it, ha- as it has since the beginning of creation. And this to me sounds exactly like what someone would say if you talk to them about the day of the Lord in our day. Even to other Christians, um, maybe they would be scoffing. Oh, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been a long time. It seems like God is is slow in keeping his promise. But Peter says, "You know, don't be thinking that. God is merciful. He's, he's working to bring all the sheep into the fold, as many as possible, gentle and humble. And anyone who comes to Jesus, he does not by any means turn away. So this is a comprehensive invitation that God's made. Come to me. After the day of the Lord, the realm of heaven, which is a, figure, it's a figurative place where God dwells and everything is as it should be, The realm of heaven, full justice, full truth, full light, where God dwells, will be joined to the earth, it says in Revelation 21, and everything will be made eternally right in God's eyes. And that joining of heaven and earth, those two realms could not happen unless the day of the Lord happened because uh, it's a purifying effect, God's kingdom being brought to bear fully on the earth, full justice, full light, full truth, full peace, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is really a time, a day when God himself, in his fullness, comes and and brings himself to bear upon the world that we live in. It will result in, in comfort for some people, vindication for people who have suffered unjustly, and even reward, the Bible says, to those who have been following the way of Jesus. But that same presence of God that brings such joy for some will bring discomfort, fear, and judgment to those who are not Uh, who have refused repeatedly God's overtures towards them. It's going to reveal them for who they are, and it's going to be a a terrible day for, for some and a joyful day for others. But really, it's just God in his fullness, unveiled glory, coming into the creation. And everything that is a lie, everything that's darkness, everything that's injustice, sin, it's all going to be done away with. The day of the Lord is often shared, by prophets and apostles, in our, in our case, in our passage today, by the Apostle Paul, to encourage God's people when they're going through, when they're going through times of extreme persecution, just like the Thessalonian church is going through. Um, and it's, it, it was also a time when, when Israel was in Babylonian captivity. This day of the Lord concept would come up in the teaching. So when God's fe- people are being unjustly oppressed, tortured, killed, because they follow Jesus, this teaching pops up as a way of encouraging them to keep moving it's meant to be encouragement it's meant to be a big picture view for people whose little picture is looking and feeling very bleak you know from the from the macro in society to our micro in our own homes and lives sometimes the the picture looks pretty bleak and it feels like the big picture but god's word to people when they lose sight of the big picture is zoom out and look at the big picture Your small picture is too bleak, it's too small, but there's something bigger going on. The day of the Lord is is God's precious promise that no matter how bad it gets in any society, God will prevail and set everything right at some point in history. As C.S. Lewis shared, and I shared last week, the only distinction between people that will matter on the day of the Lord is, are you someone who is continually saying to God, your will be done in my life? Or are you a person to whom God will ultimately say, your will be done? In other words, on that great day of the Lord, whatever decisions a person has made thus far in terms of Jesus' lordship in their lives will determine their ultimate outcome. And anything God decides will be fair and right, and everyone will look at it and say, yep, that's pretty solid. Not everyone will see. There won't be any lies or shifting or you know, maneuvering around it. Everyone will be like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, God's judgment will be shown to be good. This picture of divine judgment is is like the disturbing story of the Egyptian pharaoh in, in the Exodus, who would not let God's people go while they were in captivity in Egypt. So despite many personal words from God that Moses gave to Pharaoh, and signs and wonders that accompanied them, five times it says in Exodus, Pharaoh hardened his own heart to God and God's purposes, and did not let God's people go. So The very direct word, accompanied by signs and wonders, hardened his heart five times. And finally, after Pharaoh had chosen to harden his heart by the act of his own free will five times, finally it says in Exodus 9.12, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. All that's happened here is God has removed his restraint from Moses. God was preserving from Pharaoh. God was preserving Pharaoh, giving him a chance, giving him a chance. And when Pharaoh had made his firm decision after five direct words from God, God removed the restraint of his grace and allowed Pharaoh's heart to fully harden. And thus, when Pharaoh and his army were swallowed up in the sea in that judgment, it was just. Uh, there was no question as to whether Pharaoh had a chance to turn. It's God's grace, as we'll see in this passage, in it's many forms that restrains evil in the world, whether through people or just his grace that we run on as Christians. And, uh, and God's grace is what keeps our hearts from hardening towards God. But if through continual and willful decisions against God's direct word to us, we continue to move in, in a disobedient direction from God, someday God might remove his restraint and his grace will go, and our hearts are going to be hardened. And we know people whose hearts get hardened Seemingly beyond repair. They're still alive, so they have hope to turn to God, but their hearts have become so hardened by sin, and God has, has essentially said, I, I've removed my restraint, and your heart's hardened, but, but repent, come back. You should come back. We see this with Jesus and the rich young ruler, right? This is a really good picture, where Jesus did not run after the rich young ruler. He was sad because of his great wealth and decided it was too high of a cost to follow Jesus. Jesus let him walk away, and Jesus had sadness in his heart over that man walking away from him. But he did not chase after him. The man had made his decision, and hopefully his heart was, was uh, supple enough that at a later time he repented and did follow Jesus. But Jesus did not chase after him. Uh, he gave him an invitation, and he walked away sad because he had great wealth. But God is always uh, always making overtures through his Humble and lowly spirit of Christ in the lives of everyone you see, to, to soften their hearts, to draw them in, and giving them all kinds of chances to come to Him. But in the end of the day, the way that judgment works is God lets people have what they've asked for their entire life. And what do you say to that? That's sort of what can you do? What can you do at that point? And that's why the day, the day of the Lord that's talked about in the Bible is considered just and right. Everyone who is judged by God on the day of the Lord will be getting what they've chosen throughout the course of their life. But as it says in Romans 2.7, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, you will give eternal life. So to those whose lives become characteristic of the kingdom Jesus is bringing, again, this is talked about in our book for small group, God-soaked life. Those people... um, Will, will gain eternal life through, through persistence. Again, we're not talking about people that are stumbling in sin. We're talking about people that are willingfully, willfully, persistently not listening when God talks to them. So persistence is in order. So in all of this, the, you know the biggest point we can make about the day of the Lord is that God will set everything right on that day. And it will be God's presence brought to bear on the creation, on His people. And for some, it will be one way, for some, it will be another way, depending on how people have lived and chosen to live. And this concept was being taught by Paul to the church to remind them, as particularly for them, in the midst of a great persecution and turmoil, that Jesus wins in the end. There's no question as to whether Jesus will prevail. And this encouragement was meant to give them strength to live for God, even when in the short term, they felt like they were being punished for living for God. That's the small picture. We're being punished for living for God, but Paul says no you're not being punished for living for God. If you continue in this way, take heart, have strength to live for God. Even this persecution is evidence that you're on the right path. So just a few, a few months after writing to the Thessalonians the first letter about the day of the Lord, Paul sends another letter to the young church, which shows they were very confused by a mixture of Paul's previous letter and the persecution going on around them. And how easy is it to become confused by how life is going and we read the Word of God, and we look at our lives, we're confused. You know, what's going on? What's going on here? And the young church had been, been confused by Paul's teaching about the day of the Lord in First Thessalonians 5, and then some other event that happened in between that, that threw them off. And the Thessalonian church had become, it says in the text, alarmed, agitated, and unsettled. They were very unsettled. They felt like the day of the Lord had come and that they were, they were losing and, uh, you know, I, I wonder today, in reality, in the midst of the world we're living in, how many people in this room feel alarmed, agitated, unsettled. It's a very unsettling time to live in. And I think God's eternal word about his uh, setting everything right can bring comfort to us in our day as well. So we're going to read uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. This is a, p- a passage I preached on months ago. And this is going to be the backdrop for looking at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12. So this is Paul talking about the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11 Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is Paul's teaching about the day of the Lord from 1 Thessalonians, and this is Paul's reaction to how that teaching has been received in Second Thessalonians 2, 1-12. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, do not become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned to have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So these Thessalonians had become alarmed and unsettled in other words, could be agitated through misunderstanding Paul's first letter. And through some kind of confusion either, either created by, he says, a counterfeit letter that was sent out by, supposedly from Paul or an incorrect prophecy that wasn't tested properly in church or simply just a false news spreading through gossip in the church, the Thessalonians were freaking out and had lost the peace that Jesus had died to give them, worrying about the day of the Lord. So despite what caused the confusion it's clear that Paul's teaching on the day of the Lord had not resulted in its intended purpose, to encourage, to fortify, to strengthen, to lift up the spirits of God's people. But instead, when mixed with the suffering that was going on in their small picture, uh, where they were being killed and, and ran, run out of town because they followed Jesus and, and oppressed legally, uh, they had interpreted all these things, of suppression as... Maybe the day of the Lord has come and we're on the wrong end of this thing. We're really worried. And they became agitated and unsettled. So when, they, when people became persecuted to such an extent that it seemed unbearable, they said, this must be the day of the Lord Paul was talking about in the first letter. And uh, you know, even Paul, who was a great communicator, they didn't get the message. So this happens all the time. I'm sure it's happening right now as I'm preaching, right? Um, I'm, I'm, if any of us is one-tenth of a communicator that Paul is, we're a pretty good communicator. So he was having trouble. They were having trouble getting the message. Uh, this, this was meant to be an encouragement to them, but became a fearful, freak-out moment for the church in Thessalonica. I wanted to share with you something that I believe. If reading the Scripture while experiencing turbulence in your life, whether it's personal turbulence or societal or political turbulence, if reading Scripture causes you to become agitated, alarmed, or unsettled, and to lose your peace, you've probably missed an important part of the story being told in the Bible. Probably gotten too focused on something that's too small. And you may have even missed the main point of the story, and may need to zoom out to see that big picture again. And that zoomed out picture, time and time again, is that for the believer and follower of Jesus, the scripture tells us how this whole thing ends. That's what the book of Revelation was all about. It was written to the church in the midst of severe suffering by John, to encourage them to persevere and to say, "In the end, this is all going to work out. Jesus is going to win." In the end, God prevails. Evil and darkness lose. Light and life flow in abundance. In in short, that prayer that we've prayed, that Jesus taught us to pray, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it gets answered. That prayer gets answered. Um, God's kingdom is here now in its seed form. It's going to come in its fullness someday. And all of the sin, sickness, war, famine, death, pandemic will in an instant cease. And death will be swallowed up in life on the great and glorious day of the Lord. And until that day, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved by the gentle and humble Savior, Jesus. God does not want us to lose our peace, to become alarmed at what is happening around us, or even unsettled or agitated, as our passage speaks about today. God wants us to remember that Jesus prevails in the end. Jesus prevails. We are definitely living in turbulent times. This, I mean... It was a wild week in the news, and this is just the United States. We, guess we have a very small picture of the world here, right? We have our own stuff that makes us feel like it couldn't get any worse. In other countries, they have the same experience. In their country, it's, 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 it's rough. It's turbulent. There have been many other times in history where people have felt the way many people are feeling today. Uh, and to them, and to us, I say, in the end, God prevails. Jesus prevails in the end. Life wins, light wins, justice wins, Jesus wins. And it's not like a beating your opponent into the dust situation. It's that the cross of Christ prevails. Jesus' cross prevails over all of the injustice and darkness in the world. But just as in our day, some of these Thessalonians became unsettled, alarmed, and agitated. So, how does Paul choose to combat this confusion and discouragement in his people in this passage? Well, he combats this through teaching something that becomes very confusing to us when we read it. And so it requires a little bit of interpretation. Uh, If we were to, we could really lose ourselves in the forest uh, of, of this teaching because we don't have the same information this church had. And in some aspects of today's passage that Paul uses to combat this confusion, there is no consensus on what Paul is referring to. But parts of it are very clear, and those are the parts I'm going to focus on today. Um, I think there's a clear enough picture that can encourage us and push us forward in the faith. So Paul says in the first five verses, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by this teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or from word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Wouldn't you have liked to have been around when Paul was telling him these things? Until the rebellion, until the man of lawlessness comes, this is all very cryptic, and Paul is saying, remember when I told you about that thing? I'll just mention it without explanation here. But you guys know what I'm talking about, Right? I would just love to know exactly what those were cooler conversations were like with Paul, where he talked about the rebellion and the, day of the, and the man of lawlessness. In response to these Thessalonians who believe Jesus had already come back, Paul says, definitely not. It hasn't happened yet. And he gives the reasons that, the, that these people take for granted, but that we have to come to understand. The reasons that Paul gives that the, um, the day of the Lord hadn't come yet is the rebellion has not yet happened. And because someone called the man of lawlessness was not yet revealed. And, you know, we get, we get the sense from the way that Paul lists these things that his audience knew what he meant by them right away. In fact, as I said in verse 5, don't you remember? I told you these things. Apparently, when Paul was with the church, this was a, a, a primary teaching that he gave to this young church. Like, you, you become a new believer. Here's our new believers class we offer after service. The rebellion, the man of lawlessness, the day of the Lord. I mean, this is like basic Christianity 101 to these people, which is just amazing to me because most people don't touch this stuff with a ten foot pole these days. Um, but Paul had these conversations, and f- from what we can gather, the things are not quite clear, but make sense. This rebellion is either a political or a religious rebellion, probably a mixture of, of two, the two, because in the other in other parts of the New Testament, uh, there 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 are Jesus Jesus prophesies and. In, in, um, Matthew 24, it's called the mini-apocalypse. Um, if, in case you don't like a big apocalypse, Matthew 24, there's a mini-apocalypse. Jesus shares, also in Mark 13. Um, and there's this idea that there will be a time of increasing wrongdoing and general opposition to God in history that is going to happen. And so uh, that, that could be what the rebellious, rebellion is. You know, the man of lawlessness is not talked about again in the rest of Scripture, but in 1 John 2.18, uh, it does talk about a concept called the Antichrist. It says, in, it says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. What? How many are there? You know, this is, uh, this is really interesting. This is how we know it is the last hour. So this man of lawlessness, the way he's described, it sounds a whole lot like the Antichrist to us. It's a rival to Christ who is revealed, much like Jesus is revealed, and imitates the real thing. He imitates Jesus with signs and wonders, and it says in 1 John 2 that many Antichrists have come, and that this man of lawlessness is like the final addition of the Antichrist. That's really interesting stuff. It kind of explains to me the telescopic nature of prophecy in the Bible, where, uh, where there's a direct meaning, then a, then a further meaning, and then a later meaning. And here we have talk about the final meaning of this Antichrist figure, the man of lawlessness, who's kind of the icing on the cake of this concept in the Bible. And there have been long lists of people that, ha- that have been thought to be antichrists in world history. Long lists. And just because they were not the antichrist, the man of lawlessness, doesn't mean they didn't have the spirit of the antichrist in them. You know, it's, it's amazing to see uh, some of the people that have come through and what, what havoc they've wreaked in the world. Uh, originally, they, the Christian church thought that various Roman emperors were the antichrist. Another, another on the list, uh, the leader of the Vandal invaders who sacked Rome, Mohammed, various popes, the papacy itself, Emperor Frederick II, Pope Gregory IX, um, each of whom viewed the other as the Antichrist, Martin Luther, <laughs> Martin Luther, King George II of England, Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon III, each side in the American Civil War, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, the League of Nations, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, there have been so many um mikhail gorbachev they said that his birth i remember this when i was a kid they said the birthmark was the mark of the beast it's just the birthmark the poor poor i I can't believe i'm saying this poor mikhail gorbachev (laughs) you know it's not the mark of the beast but you know were there some were there some characteristics in these people that that um were kind of antichrist yeah we know who jesus is humble and uh lowly and you know what We can see this um Yasser Arafat, Saddam Hussein, the New Age movement, theologian Matthew Fox. You don't know what he did. Henry Kissinger, former presidents Jimmy Carter and Ronald Wilson Reagan. Six letters in each name, 666. That's both sides of the political aisle, right? And Reagan recovered from a serious wound, you know, like in Revelation 13. So all of these have been thought to be by various people at various times, the Antichrist. And it's, it's just interesting how even in our day, either side of the political spectrum thinks of the other candidate as the Antichrist. So these, speculation doesn't work very well for us um, in these things. And I don't want to speculate about these things. But I will say, according to the Word of God, there have been many Antichrists, and there will be a final Antichrist. We don't know who that is. And he will—he will, it says he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So this, Since God's people do not worship in a temple anymore, this is a metaphorical placing himself in God's place. In verse 6, Paul speaks of another mystery of our passage. He says, And you know what is holding him, the man of lawlessness, back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders to serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them all a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth of have delayed in wickedness. And just seeing this now, this is very much in Congress with the Exodus story, with the, the, the magicians of Pharaoh doing counterfeit signs. They could imitate God's signs, and then eventually God gave Pharaoh over and let him, his heart be hardened. This is saying God will give a delusion and allow people to go all the way the wrong way at some point in history. That's an interesting thing to study. But first, Paul says to his original hearers, you know what is holding him back. Again, we don't know what's holding him back, the the, the man of lawlessness. But these people heard this from Paul when he was with them. Um, we can only assume that this is God's grace in some form, whether it's through a person or whether it's just God's sheer grace and power holding back the man of lawlessness till he should be revealed. We can read this passage as a powerful indication that evil is not unchecked in the world. Even when the world is very, very evil, it's still in check from the restraint of God's grace. Whether through people God puts in place or God himself, evil is not running rampant yet. And it never will be out of God's control. In this passage, we see that, there's a res- that God restrains evil and holds it back. Things are not spinning out of control. There's a strong influence God has over evil until the time when he sets it free. And when God sets evil free, in other words, stops restraining, he's not causing evil, but stops restraining it, that evil will be ripe for God's judgment. That's what that's, what that's all about. And Everyone will say, yep, that's, that's, uh, that's right. So when God's grace stops restraining evil, it says the man of lawlessness will be revealed, displays a power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. And then as soon as this man of lawlessness is revealed, here's a crystal clear t- teaching in this passage. Jesus wins. That's the cool thing about this. The text says, And the lawless one will be revealed, in verse 8, And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So I don't know if you caught that, but within one sentence, Jesus wins. So people focus on the Antichrist. The whole like books are written on the Antichrist, where the Antichrist is the main character in a fictional retelling of Bible prophecy, and we're focusing on the wrong thing. Jesus wins in a sentence. So for anyone who feels alarmed or agitated or unsettled, like the Thessalonians, who have zoomed in too closely, peace be with you. Jesus wins. God is restraining evil in the world, but just as with Pharaoh of Egypt, God will someday stop restraining evil and allow evil to do its worst. And it will come to its ultimate conclusion. And just as it does this, just as evil crescendos as high as it can go in the cosmos, just as in the time of Pharaoh, the horse and the riders get swallowed up in the sea, God will overcome with his word from his mighty breath. In all of this, God will be seen to be just because God... Because all God is doing is allowing evil to become what it is, unrestrained, and become the fullness of what it is. So in the end, the only people who will perish will be those who, like Pharaoh, harden their hearts continually and willfully throughout their entire life. And to that, God can only say, if that is what you want, your will be done. Our text says, They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, so they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delayed in wickedness. On the day of the Lord, when the final Antichrist is revealed, just before Jesus is revealed, the world will have been let go from the restraint of God's grace, allowed to become its full self, evil self. And at that time, it says, God will give them over to their own will and they will be judged. This is why... I often in my sermons talk about the importance of Lord, Jesus' lordship in our lives. And it's something that I speak to myself, preach to myself about as well as to you, but in these seemingly small decisions where we are continually saying no to God and then eventually we don't really feel even convicted anymore, those are that's scary territory. We have to be people who are following Jesus, even in the small things, because ultimately we're talking about softness or hardness of heart. A heart that says your will be done or a heart that says, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of kick against the goads here until, you know, till the voice stops speaking to me, you know. And God, I don't think that God um, like with the rich young ruler, you know, at some point people do make a decision and walk away from Jesus, but the offer is always there as long as we're alive. And Jesus is humble. In all of this, it's amazing to think the paradox of it that Jesus, there's this day of the Lord and the humble, gentle Savior that desires that no man perish, um, is delaying the day of the Lord precisely because he wants more people to know Jesus. It's an amazing thing. I think that those issues of lordship in our lives, the things we think about when we're singing worship songs, um, like surrender songs, like we sung today, are important. It's God's kindness and grace that preserves us, as I said last week, and allows us to continue to repent and follow him and not be hardened in our hearts. And if it weren't for God holding back evil, I think we'd all be consumed by it at the end of the day. So it's vitally important to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as God said, because it's God's, God's work in us. It has to be treated carefully. But now for the main point of the text, I think the message is clear. We may not know exactly what is restraining evil in the world. We may not know who exactly the man of lawlessness is or how this deception will work, but we do know in the end, Jesus overcomes. In the same sentence that says the Antichrist is revealed, in that same sentence, Jesus is revealed and defeats evil. This is a good word for us in our time, I think, for what we, we go through in our lives and our world today. Our world is definitely in turmoil. And Christians are unsettled and alarmed all around the world. In the USA, we are in turmoil. You know, we have, we've had a worldwide pandemic. We have a very contentious election and political climate. And it's the point where you can't even let your kids watch the debates because you don't want them to learn these bad habits, right? That's pretty bad. Um, we have generational injustices that have to be dealt with that have led to our, in our current day, to more suffering and death. All while we continue to resist repenting. We have violence, both in action and in word, everywhere we turn. We have family and friends torn apart because they can't stand someone else's view on something on Facebook. Um, and it cannot be continue to be in relationship with one another, holding each other in relationship. We have we have a week where. You know, our president has contracted a deadly virus. I mean, hopefully he will be okay, we pray. But these are, that's a very uncertain and tumultuous time that we live in. And sometimes it seems like things can't get much worse from week to week in the news cycle. It's heartbreaking stuff. But in the end, in the midst of all of this, Jesus wins. He will eventually overcome and so, do not let anything make your heart anxious, alarmed, agitated, or unsettled because, Jesus, as Rob Reamer says, Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is not surprised by the news cycle or alarmed. He sits in heaven in uncontested, perfect peace at all times. That's our Jesus. I think the only thing that we should be focused on is the state of our hearts. You know, this passage talks about people believing the lie and then becoming hardened, just like Pharaoh became hardened. And, uh, As as you continually follow Jesus as Lord, maintaining a soft heart towards Jesus is so important. And that includes maintaining a soft heart towards other people who are made in God's image. Because you can't have a clear relationship with with God without having a clear relationship with others as well that he's made. So are you continually following Christ as Lord, maintaining a soft heart towards God and others, especially the poor, the disenfranchised among us? Or have you lost your peace in the midst of turbulence? Are you believing lies being thrown at you? Or are you holding on to truth with both hands to follow Jesus as Lord? Are you a part of the deception and perpetuation of injustice and violence in the world? Or are you on the side of righteousness within our current political moment? I know that many people hear that and they have opposite answers in their mind of what that looks like. But we have to engage with these questions. We have to realize that to be deceived um, is is very easy and very complicated. And the man of lawlessness, I think that he's going to deceive, you know, if it were possible, even the elect, it says in the Bible. You know, this is deceptive stuff. We have to look and pray and keep our hearts soft and keep open to God, keep our allegiance to Jesus and walk through this time. And for anyone who's troubled, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, right? This is the belief that Jesus is going to make everything right. The day of the Lord is coming. He's at work in the world in a way, uh, actually in a very serious way, as we engage with one another in community and grow in small groups and seeing what it means to live into this kingdom that God's brought us and keep our hearts soft towards God and towards other people, keeping the, the gift of the re- repentance in the forefront, changing our mind, changing our hearts, growing, listening, there's, there's a real chance to make a big difference in the world, in our, in our small part of it anyway. I want to commend to you to, uh, to read 2 Peter 3 in the coming days. But this is another pa- passage about the day of the Lord uh, that, that talks about this concept. And I really love, as it's talking about the day of the Lord, uh, It's kind of crescendos to verse 13. And then in verse 14 it has a great uh, benediction. Talking about Jesus winning, about about God overcoming the day of the Lord, it says in verse 14, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that your Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Thank you, Peter which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are here. I thank you that everyone who's here has heard your call, and all of us are being encouraged to persevere through troubled times, trusting in you as as the Lord, as the Savior, as the President of our lives, as the true Supreme Ruler of our lives. And uh, we pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In our lives, in our small groups, your kingdom would grow from a mustard seed into a tree, where all the birds of the air can find their rest. We pray for your kingdom to come. We pray for humility and humbleness of heart, for hearts of repentance, for soft hearts towards you and towards other people. I pray that we live into this vision as we await the day of your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. Jesus triumphs over all. Be the church.